It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. All right. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Airhead 247 podcast. Let's start with a bit of news and notes and some housekeeping today. Surely you've noticed a few new things at the top of the program. We've got new theme music. That's a little something we put together for you guys here, so we hope you like it. Of course, you'll now notice we have some great sponsors on board. In short, Wedgetail Ignitions, BMW MOA, and Boxer 2 Valve support what we do here on the program, so we hope you will, in turn, consider supporting them. Of note, with the MOA, we've partnered with them for a membership drive with the goal of adding 200 new members over the next six months. That's a lot, but I think that goal can be reached. By new members, we also mean, well, maybe you were a member, but that's lapsed in the past three years or so. So that counts as well. You'll hear a short bit more on this later in the program, but for now, just let me say, please consider joining the MOA as a way to support this program and the membership is free. That's right. It's free. All you need to do is go to the link and the description we've put inside of this and all our other episodes. Follow that link. Use the code AIRHEADS247 and you're done. I've done it. It's easy. And now I'm enjoying access to the MOA flea market forums, their monthly magazine, and I even just sold a jacket on their flea market. So well worth it. William Plam will also be joining us in this episode and in future ones with conversations on selected airhead topics. This week, we'll discuss brake systems on the 247. So thanks to William, Edward, and the crew at Boxer 2 Valve for supporting the program here and for adding some interesting and informative content. Finally, thanks to Don, Brad, Sean, and Leaf, all who wrote in with pictures and stories of their survivor bikes. We're working on a project for these sometime in the near future. If you have an original condition, original paint bike, we'd love to hear from you. Airheads247 at hotmail.com. Also want to say thanks to Tim in the UK for sending us guest suggestions. We all know there's a great airhead scene in the United Kingdom, and we'll be featuring more folks from your neck of the woods, Tim, in upcoming episodes. Elspeth Beard is our guest this week. She owns... Probably the most famous R60-6 in circulation. If you are not familiar with her, she was the first British woman to circle the globe on a motorcycle. That's 60-6, but that's only part of her story. She's also an accomplished architect and still active in the motorcycle scene in the UK today. Many of you have read her book. It's called Lone Rider. And if you haven't, it's a good one to put on the to-do list. Elspeth still owns and rides the R60-6, among a few other bikes she has. We'll talk about those motorcycles and a number of interesting topics this week. So off we go. 
We're on the line with Elspeth Beard, and thanks for taking some time to talk. First thing I want to ask you is, what is the current status of the R60-6? Uh, well, my R60 is, uh, is actually uh, on the road. I still ride her. Um, she did have about 18 years, I think, of uh, being left uh, kind of neglected in the in the back of my um, garden. Um, but I decided, actually, it was when all the sort of interest uh, started in my story and what I'd done, I thought it was a good opportunity to get her going again. And actually, I, I was I was amazed how little I had to do to her to get her going. Um, literally, I just changed the oils, cleaned all the petrol out, uh, cleaned, cleaned the carbs out, uh, new battery, and I think she started second second push of the button. So that's pretty good after 18 <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it's amazing, I know. And then I uh, then I got her uh, MOT because we have to get you know put our put the uh, old um, bikes through through tests and things here. And she passed first time. And then so for the last five, five years, I've been riding her. I mean, not not all the time. She's not my everyday bike, but um, I certainly. Uh, I, I certainly take her out on a nice Sunday afternoon or something and poofle around the, you know, the lanes and stuff. So, yeah, no, she's definitely uh, up and running. That's good to hear. So you said it was parked for about 18 years. What was the impetus to get it back out and running again? Well, it was, you know, I, I got kind of, um, you know, distracted with, well, I say with life, really. It was... Um, I was building a water tower, um, I, you know, which I bought in uh, 1988. That took seven years to complete. Uh, I had a baby that was born hot halfway through, and then I was starting up my architectural practice. So I just got kind of, you know, distracted with life, doing stuff and other things. Um, and it was really when my when my book came out in 2017. Well, now actually, I think it was slightly. Before that, when when I started to write my book, and I and there was a lot of um, interest on the internet uh, about my journey and what I'd done, and so I thought that well maybe I you know I should I mean I never would have sold her she she was sort of part of me um, but I just didn't really you know there was just a, a you know a period where I. I didn't really ride her at all. Um, uh, and then it was... Nope. Uh-oh. Hi. Hey, that was very rude of AT&T to cut us off there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, like, what are you doing? Like, what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> that may that may happen. Uh, I've uh, I do international calls with a calling card, and it just sometimes I'll be on the phone for an hour and a half, and it's fine. Other calls, I'll have two or three drops. So if okay. if you if you okay. feel your right. yeah if you feel you're talking into the wind, believe me, it's it's not you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about um, the impetus for getting the bike started. Other things, life had gotten in the way. Uh, your book had come out, and so you were 
sorting of to allude to the fact there that that's probably what kind of kicked you in the butt a little bit to say, hey, people are going to start asking about the bike again. Maybe I should probably freshen it up. Yeah, well, I, I, yes, because I was also um, starting to be asked to go to sort of, um, you know, bike events and give talks and presentations, and, and they all wanted me to sort of take the bike there, and, and, and so it was all part of just this general interest in my journey, which, which happened sort of 35 years after I got home, which was all very odd. Um, so I just, uh, I mean, I'm sure I would have done it at some point, but it kind of spurred me on to do it, uh, then. Um, and it was great. It was so nice to, you know, to get back on her again, again, and ride her and all these thoughts of, of my journey came sort of flooding. Back. Oh, I can imagine. And all the little, you know, and all the little quirks and really annoying things about her, all the kind of bodge <laughs> repairs that I'd done along the way. I suddenly remembered them all. I went, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't work. I can remember that now. I, I fixed that in India or something, or I tried to fix it in India. So it was, a, it, I mean, it was a strange experience, but it was great, and it's really nice to have her, you know, up and running again. Yeah, I recently spoke uh, with a fellow called Daniel Rentz, uh, who did a round-the-world trip uh, over a period of, I don't know, six or seven years, and it was two different trips. Anyway, his... Uh, take on finishing his trip and with his motorcycle was he was ready to move on from the bike and sell it. Uh, he had a different, he, it's not that he didn't have a connection with the bike. He just had a different way of putting that part of his life behind him. And for him, it was actually selling the motorcycle. And that sounds like that was a thought that, that never probably really crossed your mind. Mm, I mean, what, was his trip a fairly recent trip? Yes. Or was it done a long time ago? No, recently. Because I think, yeah, you see, there's a big difference, and I think, and I think the difference is in the in the olden days when I travelled, you you because you actually worked and spannered on your bikes because you kind of had to, and you could because they were simple and basic, and you could work on them. It actually helped you to develop a very close relationship with it and I think and I think now with modern bikes where you know they're all serviced they're all just they're almost parts parts that just get kind of plugged in uh, it's it's you don't have that same sort of relationship that you do when you I mean every single nut and bolt on my bike I know yeah everything yeah and let me say here now his his bike was I think a eighty four R eighty GS so it was an older bike and he did it have was quite old yeah yeah he had yeah. the spanners out on it and I you know I guess I mentioned that to say I you know people have different ways of experiencing things in life and then different ways of either moving on or finding a new journey or a new path and I think. For him, in his case, it was, you know, I, I just need to put this behind me and sell it on. Uh, but like you say, in your case, uh, you really didn't have those thoughts, regardless mm -hmm. of whether it's an old bike or a new bike. And I understand your yeah. point, especially, you know, if you're on a, you know, 2020 GS, you're not going to have that, <laughs> that same it. connection. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when I got back from my trip, uh, I can remember I parked the bike in uh, in the back of my parents' 
garage, and I I didn't I didn't even unpack it. I, I just left it because I didn't want. You know, I've been wearing the same clothes for you know <laughs> years or whatever. You know, I just didn't want to look at anything on that bike. I didn't, and I so it just sat there probably for about six or eight months, and then I gradually got it out, and then I started to unpack it, and then I took it apart completely um, and rebuilt her. So, and then I suppose because I'd done that. She and I think I had her on the road then for a year or two. I didn't ride her that much because I was a bit over whatever with, with you know with, with riding you know bikes by then. Um, so I didn't ride her that much. Um, and then I bought the you know the water tower, which is an old Victorian water tower, which I spent seven years converting it uh, in, into my home, and that was a whole nother project and sure. challenge and. And whatever, so I, I then she just kind of faded into the distance. But I never, I never crossed my mind to sell her ever. Yeah, it's it's probably one of I, I think I can easily say this the most famous R sixty slash six there is. Uh, I mean, the photos on the internet are ubiquitous, uh, and there's some great pictures of that uh, that appear in your book uh, that that we see online all the time. Have you thought about where that bike will be 50 years from now? Have people approached you about putting it in a museum? Has BMW talked to you? Or have you any had any no. conversations or thoughts like that? No, nobody's approached me. Uh, it was going to be flown out to Los Angeles. I think they had an a, a exhibition at the Peterson yeah. uh, Museum, I think it is, in yep. Los Angeles. Uh, and they had a car whole section of adventure, and they wanted to, you know, to ship the bike out there. But I wasn't, I don't know, it was very odd. I almost didn't want to be parted with her. I mean, she and I have been, you know, she's always been with me for, for like 40 years. And, and I just thought of her sailing off on a ship, you know, without me. All by, and, yeah, all by herself, right? All by herself yes. into the unknown, and I thought. Oh. Anyway, uh, I think in the end the costs were like you know prohibitive, prohibitive anyway. Um, so so it didn't happen. But I mean, I would like it to go into a museum um, uh, somewhere. Um, I mean, I'm sure where it ends up will gradually you know work itself out um but at the moment i'm still riding it so yeah. i wouldn't really want it to be anywhere else but but where it is but, you know so what is the the current mileage on it well that's a good question it's just about well the well the speedometer well the the odometer has hit uh just i think mean, it's got 99,000 something and something on it miles that is but the but the speedo cable broke umpteen times yeah, so right. to be honest i don't know what the true mileage is um i'm not quite sure whether i want to kind of ride it and get it to zero 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah right or whether i want to leave it on 99,000 yeah. miles or not um but yeah so that, that that's what's on her but as i said um I mean, there were whole chunks of the trip where the speedo wasn't really working, you know, half of the time. So, that, yeah, uh, that's not surprising to hear. I, I, I wonder yeah. when you're doing repairs or you might need another part or something on there, I imagine it's a pretty sympathetic 
uh, process or a approach you have to it, meaning, you know, you don't want to necessarily buy, for example, a new seat to put on there, or you wouldn't want to put on, buy a new fender or things like that uh, to change that those sort of parts of the bike. Are you cognizant of that when, you know, you're uh, looking after it and, and repairing it and things like that? I mean, I mean, obviously, like silencers, I I have to put new ones of those on, right. and they you know, look a bit shiny when they start off. Um, the actual, the rest of the exhaust uh, system is held together with wire and like <laughs> exhaust tape, um, and it seems to be fine. It always seems to get through uh, the um, you know the test every year. Um, I mean, things like if it gets bashed on the tank or if the, it's all part of, it's all just part of her life. Um, so I don't worry. I mean, she's not pristine by any stretch of no. imagination. She looks like a well-used bike. And when I, when I rebuild her, I mean, I rebuilt all the engine and all the working parts and replaced all the parts that needed to be replaced. But everything else is like original. So the tank's all still beaten up and and, and all scratched and half the paint's come off it. Uh, the front mud guard's got scratches all over it. You know, it's, it's still... The only thing I did change was the seat because the original seat was... I mean, there was no, um, I mean, literally the foam where I sat <laughs> for many, many hours yeah. was almost completely flat. So I was sitting on the, on the metal bit of the seat. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. So I did manage to find a replacement seat, which was an old original straight six. But this, I mean, this, yeah, I mean, I think I did that. This was uh, 20 years uh, and I got back, yeah, so this would be quite a long time ago. So it was then relatively easy to get hold of, of straight six seats um, then. So I managed to get one somewhere. Um, I can't remember where. But it was in good condition, and that one is still on it now. But my original seat, I think it just completely fell apart. Or it was all, you know, rusted underneath. Oh, it was all ripped, and all the half the foam was coming out. Um, I kept the, you know, the hand grip on the back, which I put on, on the new seat, and the and the R60 stroke six, um, you know, metal. Yeah, uh, the little badge on the back there. Yeah, the badge on the back of the seat. I, it's so so that's back on it, and that's all scratched and whatever. Um, so, but the seat is probably the only sort of cosmetic thing that I that I changed. The rest of it is all original. Perfect. So what other bikes, uh, if any, do you have in your garage? It seems like maybe I saw a picture of a, uh, of a first or second generation BMW GS or something along those yes, lines. I've got, yeah, um, so I've got an 80 GS Basic, which is a sort of Paris-Dakar, um, but which actually, I have to say, I, I really, I love it. It's... It's kind of got all the advantages of the old bike, so it's easy to fix, service, maintain, all that. Really simple, but it's got it's got some new, newer kind of. I mean, it's still. I mean, I think of it as a new bike, but it's actually over twenty years old. Yeah. Now let me <laughs> let me 90. ask you: Is that the the ninety like the ninety four ninety five model? So it's got the paralever. No, it's a nineteen ninety seven model. Oh wow, so, you've got um, one of the last have, that's one of the last one ones. Of the, yeah, the very last of the airheads. Oh my gosh. And, I know, and it took me three years to find it. Tell me the story. Um, Tell me the story on that. Uh, 
I know. It was, it was, and I absolutely love it. Um, it, it was. I think that you might get loads of people um, writing in saying, "No, she's wrong." Um, <laughs> but I think it was originally. Um, it was called the the the, the R80 Basic, and they were all all the same. They were a white bike with a blue frame. Right. And they were originally made for the South African market. That's and what I've heard, the yes. Kalahari. Yep. They were called the Kalahari. So mine is like a grey import, as we call it here. So it wasn't registered in this country originally. So it was a grey import because it came over from, well, I don't know, from, from Europe or from South Africa. Um, so they were really, really, really hard to find. Um, so I bought it in about two... 2004, I think, or three. So I've had, no, yes, 2003, I think. So I've had that for about 20 years. Now, where did you, uh, where did you find it? It was actually, I just put the word out. Um, you know, I knew quite a lot of the salespeople at BMW in various dealerships. Um, I just kind of put feelers out everywhere. And then finally somebody, uh, somebody from one of the, you know, the dealerships phoned me up and said, this, this guy's just come in. He's got an R80 basic. Uh, he's looking to sell it swap it to something else, are you interested? And I was down there like a shop, you know, and I bought it <laughs> straight away. Um, and it's been great. It's re- and that's my everyday bike. That's, that's the bike I use. Now, uh, now if it's not improper to ask, do you remember what you paid for it back then? I paid £5,000 for it. But, wow. but it had the Touratech uh, panniers on it as well. Okay, all right. So And it and it had the Paris-Dakar, you know, the big tank, because mm-hmm. I think the Kalahari, originally, they only had the smaller tank on it. That's right, yeah. So it's so, very similar to the uh, Paris-Dakar tank on the first-generation G. Well, it's the same one yeah. as the first-generation yes. GS. Yes. Wow. So someone had already spent like 500 quid on the tank, and uh, and I think 500 quid, I think, was probably on, on all the panniers and the rack and everything. So I, it, it was, I mean, at the time, I remember thinking it was a lot of money, but, but then, then I didn't know that it was going to become such a sort of classic bike. Exactly, um, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you're one of the rare uh, folks there that has that year model of an airhead, I mean, Truly, truly, the last of the run. Do you know? Happen to know where it is on the um, VIN number sequence? As far as I've no idea. I've never looked, to be honest. Uh, I've never, it never <laughs> even occurred to me to look at that. Yeah, there's <laughs> a famous. Funny. There's a famous foot. Well, famous. I, that's relative term. But there's a picture. Let me put it that way. Uh, I can remember seeing. I want to say it was sometime in December of. Uh, 97, right towards the end of the calendar year, when there was, they took a picture of the last airhead to come off the assembly line, uh, and it was like your bike. I think it was just the basic, though. It wasn't the Kalahari with the larger tank, but um, yeah, the last, the last of the run. No, you know? but mine actually, mine actually started off as a basic, and oh, then okay. the guy, the previous owner, changed the tank and put the bigger tank on it. Hmm. Yeah, so I'd, mine originally was the small tank. Interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious what what that serial number is and where it is. You know, just out of uh, you know, for fun <laughs> fun purposes, where it is on on the true last of the airheads. Well, that's a neat yeah. story. Okay, so you've got an R eighty basic. Uh, anything else? 
And then I've got a Beta Alp, which is a, a, a sort of off-road uh, bike. So it's got a Suzuki DRZ engine, and then the Beta is a sort of... And then it's been made to look stylish by the Italians, so it's a Beta Alp. Okay, when um, you say... Is that what we would pronounce Beta here? Oh, uh, Beta, yes. Okay. Probably, yes. All right. Yes, Beta Alp. Um so, so, and that's great. I love that as well. Actually, that's a really good bike. And those are the. And then, of course, I've got my R, my R sixty straight. Yeah, well, wow, so that's I've got three. Yeah, three well, bikes. That's a nice, uh, a, a nice, manageable stable of machines for you. It sounds Indeed. like. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So, first off. Thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. So I want to ask you, you mentioned the water tower home and and project uh, that took up a lot of your time post uh, your trip. Uh, And you've got uh, you've got a background, a degree. You work as an architect. I've worked as an architect. A lot of folks I've noticed, uh, not everybody, but a lot of folks I've talked to uh, in this series have an engineering background, uh, an applied science or design background, in your case, architecture. Uh, I'm wondering, from your perspective, how does the sort of airhead speak to you as an architect? What When you look at the bike and the lines, not only yours, but maybe others, uh, earlier designs, later designs or whatever, how does that bike speak to you uh, in, in that way? Um, I think and one thing I love about the old um, airheads and the old BMWs is, well, especially the flat twins, is that they're beautifully balanced and they're symmetrical. And I like symmetry. <laughs> um, and whether that's an architect thing, I'm not sure. Um, but I, you know, I love the simplicity of it. I, you know, with my buildings that I design, I don't over-design them. I keep them. Um, simple but sort of functional and beautiful, I hope. Um, 
And I just don't think that things need to be overcomplicated. I think a lot of things these days, in all um, aspects, in many aspects of life, I should say, are just too complicated. And it's just not necessary. And it's almost as if we've lost the, the you know, just keeping things simple and functional. Um, so I suppose it's those sorts of things that I do in my work that I that I do uh, that, that I like about the you know the BMWs and I think also with my projects I I tend to design houses that 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 sort of you know mature with age so they look better as they get older and you design and everything I design and all the materials I choose I design for buildings to last for, you know, hopefully 100 years, if not more. Um, and that's what I like about the old bikes. You know, they were, they were built to last. They, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're robust. They're, you know, they're, they're, and also I think being a flat twin, it's a very low-stressed engine, which kind of appeals to me as well. I don't know why. <laughs> you don't really feel as if the bike's ever working very hard. No, I, yeah. It's just plodding along nicely, and it can keep on plodding on and on and on. (laughs) And it will do that for just as long as you want it to. And it's that, there's those aspects, I think, that really, um, you know, appeal to me. Um, And the fact that it's, you know, and also, obviously, it's a kind of side thing, it's, it's really easy to work on. And, you know, I like to make my buildings easy to maintain, easy to look after, um, because if you don't make it easy to maintain look after, people won't look after them. So, and that's what I like about the, the, the you know, the flat twin engine. Everything's there. It's all out, right in front of you, and it's so easy to work on. I mean, it is. If I could do it, anybody could do it. It is. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, so I think it's those elements um, that, as I said, that I really like about them. My my father owned a R sixty slash six. His was a seventy six. It was blue, uh, with the smaller tank, and he passed that on to me. Uh, he owned it uh, maybe about seven or eight years. We took some trips on it together. He was riding that when when he hung up his helmet. Uh, he passed that bike on to me. I held on, managed to hold on to it for about three or four years. I seem to have a real wanderlust with bikes, <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, I, you know I don't own it any longer. But I did do a nice trip with my wife on it. We rode uh, down. We rode the Natchez Parkway, which is uh, a parkway in uh, Mississippi, uh, here in the southern part of the United States. And it was the R60 was a real treat to ride, especially because on the parkway. It's a controlled speed limit of 45 miles an hour. So, mm-hmm. and there's no commercial vehicle traffic. So the whole point of that trip, is, uh, that road, is you motor along at a slow pace. Uh, it's restricted speed limit, and there's lots of pull-offs, things to see, uh, nature, hikes, trails, and things like that. And that was such an enjoyable motorcycle to ride, two up for us. Uh, very well behaved. You know, you're not having to worry about wanting or needing to push it uh, necessarily uh, like you might, you know, an R100 or or an RS or something along those lines. So uh, I, I know what you're saying. And 
as far as the design element, you know, the, the twin shock bikes uh, up through the Slash 7 series and until the monolevers came out, there is a nice balance um, mm. to the design. And you the know. weight as well. The yeah. The gravity is so low. Yeah. I mean, you don't feel any of it. I mean, I rode that thing on the most, on terrible roads, dirt <laughs> roads. And, you know, it just kind of bogged along, you know. It's yeah. just kind of fine. It, it sort of does everything, it does everything well. Um, and it does everything easily. And it doesn't make a fuss about anything. Do you know what I mean? It just, it just, it just copes with everything. And it, you know, and you get really good mileage per gallon. That's right. Um, you know, and it's, and it's, and, and I think, you know, and it is so, as I say, such, such low stress on, on the engine. It'll just go on for like, you know, ever probably. Well, not quite ever, but do you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, yeah, I think they're brilliant. And I think they're very, uh, underrated actually. I think, uh, they, they never, really got the, you know, the whatever. Because I, I think the limelight was stolen by by all the, you know, the R90S or right. the BMWs. And, and so the R60 was just this, this kind of plodder at the bottom of the pile. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. It sounds like, I mean, you never were really wanting for a larger displacement bike, especially on the trip. Now, you know, even though it was a 600cc engine, it's not necessarily lighter or easier to handle than, you know, the R90 of the day might have been. It's a, it's a smaller, just a, a smaller CC bike. But at the same time, it doesn't sound like you were uh, wishing you had a larger displacement bike at all. No, I didn't. I didn't really need it. I mean, when when I was riding across the stage, well, A, you have speed limits there anyway, but you don't really, I mean, you know, my bike would cruise quite comfortably at 80 miles an hour, and that's fine. You know, you, you don't, I mean, I probably, I wouldn't always ride it at that because I was always trying to save fuel <laughs> um, and time was something I had money was money was something I didn't have so um, it didn't matter how long it took me to get places but it was the more the cost it, it was to get there so and I, I you know and I was there to you know to, to see I wasn't in a rush um, I think you know it's, you have to you know give your time you know yourself time to absorb where, where you are and um, so and then after I after I left Australia, I mean most of all Southeast Asia and India. I mean India, I don't think I managed to get out of third third gear. <laughs> yeah, because I believe the roads were just full of so much stuff, and you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't even think about going, you know, more than 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 a certain speed because it was just dangerous. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean. Uh, uh, those of us who are Americentric, you know, here in the States thinking, oh, you know, gosh, 600 cc's, that's hardly enough. Well, yeah, you bring up a great point. Some parts of the world, you're not even going to get out of third gear. Uh, no. So, And know, actually, if you've got a big bike, you're, you're, you're grinding around yeah. first and second gear all the time. Yeah. And it's actually quite hard work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. You know, the... It, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on to a few other topics and talking about the 60 slash six in particular, uh, I always found, yes, it was on the highway. You could get it up to, you know, 65, 70. It was real comfortable. No problem. The only thing I found it lacking was, you know, if you did need to make a quick takeoff, 
meaning, you know, there was a lot of traffic or something and you needed to, you know, buzz across and make a quick move here or some, something somewhere, the slide carburetors and the smaller displacement left a little bit to be desired in that department sometimes. Mm. I mean, you or that, yeah, yeah, yeah that, or yeah. you really had to load the, uh, load the RPMs uh, before you reach the clutch and and just go for it. I mean, that was yeah. that was sort of my experience. But maybe being too up didn't help. No, no, that's true. My wife's very petite now, so it wasn't. No, no, I'm not. I wasn't implying anything. Yeah. But, uh, I had loads of luggage, but I imagine the yeah. two of you with loads of luggage. That's um, funny. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Well, uh, we could talk about uh, that particular bike all day. I have fond memories of mine, as I do yours, or, or as you do yours. So, uh, yeah. here's a couple other uh, things I wanted to visit with you on. One in in reading your book, one of the things uh, I found interesting, and I wanted to ask you about, and almost embarrassing to a certain extent. Uh, just that people would even write these letters were the rejection letters you got from magazine publishers or potential sponsors. You know, it was almost like, uh, yeah, you know, thanks little lady. Uh, good luck with your trip. Right. You know, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but um, I just found it astounding, especially today uh, where we are today uh, that, you know, you would get those letters. It, did you find it? You mentioned it was a little discouraging, but just tell me about receiving those and what, how that affected, you know, your planning and, and what you wanted to do going forward. I, was it some motivation to a certain extent as well? Um, yes. I mean, it, 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 I mean, I, I think I probably sent out about 28 eight letters. Yeah. I, mean, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, naive enough to ask for, for money, or yeah, I didn't expect them to sort of throw loads of money at me to to go off and do it. I think, I think, I think for most of the, I think I wrote to, uh, like the bike magazines, and I sort of said, would they be interested if I wrote back? Uh, you know, I could sort of write a, you know, a, um, you know, do an article every now and again. I could send it back, and they could follow my journey around the world, and they could maybe pay me a little bit of money or yeah. something. From you know, I wasn't as I said, it wasn't. Um, and then I think I, I don't think it actually occurred to me to write to kind of clothes manufacturers in this because you didn't really do that stuff it in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wrote to BMW in Munich, and um, and I suppose I asked them for help, and I did ask them for sponsorship, and they were actually very very nice. I mean, they were very polite. Uh, it was a very nice kind of no thanks kind of letter. <laughs> okay. um, but they, but they, they offered, you know, they sent me books of all their BMW dealerships around the world. All right. They, 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 you know, so they were kind of helpful, but they basically said, you know, we already know that our bikes are the best, so we don't really need to sponsor anybody <laughs> to go around the world to prove it. And, and which might sound a bit odd, but in those days, if you, you know, like in the early 1980s, if you were going to do a round-the-world motorcycle trip, you didn't really think about doing it on any other bike but a BMW. I mean, there were some people who had gone around on, you know, um, um, you know, the Motor Goods, which are V-twins, which I suppose are similar-ish. You know, they're fairly well, solidly built. Um, but kind of everybody, it was just automatic choice with a BMW. 
So in in a way, they were kind of. I mean, obviously nowadays you have you know, a choice of hundreds of bikes you can do trips on, and people travel in in a very different way to to uh, you know to then. But but I, I remember getting the, the letter back from Bike Magazine. Which yeah. Was so condescending. That's and the one so I'm thinking rude. of. Yeah. Yeah, and it was so rude. And it was almost, it was just a joke. And and I think what actually annoyed me about it was they actually took the time and trouble to, you know, to reply and insult me. You know, they could have just thrown my letter yeah. in the bin and not <laughs> bothered to reply yeah, right. like yeah, the yeah. other 26 people. But the fact they actually sat down and obviously discussed it in the office and had a good old laugh about it and then made up and composed this letter to be as insulting as they could possibly be, as if, I, I don't know, and it was that that I think, and I remember opening that, and I was absolutely fuming. It yeah. made me so angry, um, and it just spurred me on and made me even more determined that I was going to that I was going to prove them wrong. There were times during the trip where you know, where times things were going really badly. I think of that letter, I go, nope, I'm going to bloody show them. I'm going <laughs> to bloody do it. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 did, it did work, um, but not quite the way they expected it to, I think. But yeah. Was there ever a postscript with them? Well, interestingly, interestingly, so the letter was written by the editor of Bike Magazine at the time, and thirty, and then I think when my book came out, and that's right, no, it went on the his letter went on the internet. Somebody in America, mm. I did a podcast with him years ago, um, and he put the letter out on the internet, and I think it's still there unless it's been taken down. And so for a few years, this letter was flying around the internet. Um, you know, the, the really insulting letter that they wrote to me. And and then the guy who wrote it, the editor, he he actually contacted me on Messenger or Facebook or something, and he said, "Oh, um, apparently this, uh, I wrote you a, a you know a letter um, back in the in the early 1980s, and and uh, you know I don't remember doing it, but, but if I did, then I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> but I've never met him. And I never, you know, he was going to come to one of my, my, actually he was going to come to my book launch at BMW, and they, but unfortunately they completely sold out, and he was on the waiting list, but he didn't get a ticket, which is so annoying. If I'd known he was on the waiting list, I would have said, I would have said, let him in, but I didn't find out till after the event was over, so I've never met him. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve 
are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Time for a visit with William Plam at Boxer 2 Valve in our Tech Talk segment. Today, the subject, airhead brakes. Pleased to be joined by William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve, and our topic of conversation today is airhead brakes. And William, I want to get started out with drum brakes, and those are standard issue on a number of the early bikes, and if I'm not mistaken, those ceased to be standard uh, issue on, was it the R60 slash six? Was that the last model to get a front drum brake? Yeah, I believe that's true. Yeah. And what is it? Let me just start by asking this. Is a drum brake still relevant and properly set up on a, on an older bike on an older slash five or slash six? Can, is it, is it sufficient? Well, yeah, I I would say that, that it, it is because you always, with these older bikes, have to start out with with uh, keeping in mind that this is an old bike and you need to ride it in the way that it was intended to be ridden and not expect a high performance like came in later years. Um, but the, properly set up, the drum brake, I think, works okay. I mean, there's a couple of limitations. They get kind of can be kind of grabby. In some situations, you have to be careful on loose gravel, that kind of thing. They, they also tend to sort of lose their effectiveness in wet conditions, but you always have to keep these things in mind and just ride around them. What's the, is there a, a trick or a technique to getting the sort of cable uh, and cam situation set up properly so you've got, so the brake shoes are sort of expanding at an even rate, I imagine that's the real key to getting these properly set up is having that expansion rate happen sort of simultaneously and evenly across the drum. That That's very important, but even before that, what's important is that you that your drum, the shoes are making good, the, the shoes of the drum are making good contact with the drum itself. Um, many years ago, when I started working on cars with Mercedes-Benz, I, I was in a shop that had been around for a long time, and we still were working on cars that had drum brakes. And I used a machine um, that's probably hard to find nowadays, but to arc the, um, the, the shoes. You basically would take the um, diameter of the drum, because it might have, it's been, you know, oversized through wear or, or through machining, and then input that number on a dial, and then it would it would basically using a sort of belt sander um, put the same radius on the shoes. Now that's pretty elaborate, but that's how you got optimal brake performance, uh, or that's in theory how you get optimal brake performance out of a drum. Sure. In, in essence, um, with, with as far as the motorcycles go, uh, the drum is is the hub. So there's only so much wear you can have, but nonetheless you'll have somewhere on an older bike and then when you put the shoes in there you the first thing you want to do is is lay the shoe in the drum and see how the contact is and you can see if it's rocking in there um, and you can mm. also maybe use a some thin feeler gauges to see if there's if it's making full contact throughout the whole 
uh, radius throughout the whole length of the brake shoe pad. And if necessary, you can make some adjustments with, uh, with a sandpaper or something to kind of do the same thing as the, um, the, the arcing machine that I was just talking about. Yeah. Because what's important is that you're, you're making full contact. If, if you have a kind of worn drum and a brand new shoe, they're a different radii and you're going to maybe have just a, a contact patch that, that goes over half of the, the lining material. Now, eventually, it'll wear itself in and to the point where it's making full contact, but you want to try to get that full contact right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. And that... then once that's been established, then the, what you're saying is absolutely true. You want to make sure that they are uh, making full contact at the same time. There is a, an adjustment on the, on the front wheel hub um, where you can sort of set the free play uh, or, or I, sh- I should say, the rest position of the of the shoe, so that it doesn't have so far to go uh, when you apply the brake, and so that that's really the, it. It's it's essentially um, applying the brake and getting the right amount of free play in there, so that the wheel's spinning freely, and that you don't have to move the lever excessively to to begin to make contact. Now it's been a while since I had a front drum brake. I had one on a slash six uh, a few years ago and on my first uh, airhead on a slash five. There's also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the cam arm adjustment there as well. So that's uh, vital in that initial setup uh, as well. No? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, I, I don't remember exactly the procedure mm-hmm. um, w- without looking at the bike, sure. you know, uh, the um, I'm not. I'm no spring chicken, um, <laughs> but in any case, the procedure is quite well outlined in in the BMW shop manual. Yeah, and it, it is basically a, a two step process, uh, as I recall, to uh, set the, um, the 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 one one shoe with the cam to the the proper rest position, and then you have the adjustment on the cable, of course, for the other shoe, so that they basically are making contact more or less at the same time. Um, but I think that also if that's designed so that you have a, a initial contact with one shoe and then the second one comes in to play so that you get a more progressive brake feel. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We're not going to go over a how-to in a phone call here, but yeah. just for conversational right. purposes, obviously. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so uh, also speaking of drum brakes, we have the rear drum. That particular setup appeared on all airheads all all the way to the end of the 95 run of course that was on uh the later gs's and i think on all the later rs's and a lot of other bikes um bmw introduced the disc brake in 1978 and it fell well i guess my first question is what's your opinion on why it fell out of favor uh after that initial introduction in the in the 78 year model we didn't see them a whole lot on 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 the later models. Was it uh, maintenance, uh, cost cutting procedure? What's your thoughts on on why it was switched back? Well, I think that it, it was probably just simplicity. In, in other words, uh, the the drum is was very adequate for the rear, and the uh, the rear disc system was unnecessarily com- complicated. And I think that they introduced the, the rear disc on, well, first of all, only on the premium models, right. the R100 series, RSRT and the S. And they did that probably more 
in, in try to keep up with, uh, with, with trends that were going on at the time, you know, disc bikes were all the rage and it was probably had something to do with that. But I think that they then went away from that on the mono lever because it was just overly complex. Um, and they needed to keep the price down. I think it was a cost-cutting measure. Yeah, I've heard uh, in some interviews I've done over the past year or so. Uh, I, I, from what I understand, it wasn't an un, an uncommon practice, not only for BMW but maybe for a lot of manufacturers, really, to make some changes based on what reviewers and popular magazines and things at the time, you know, were saying. A lot of times it was a response to, well, this is a great bike, but wouldn't it be great if it had a rear disc brake? And, okay, well, let's go on and do it. Uh, and in the end, <laughs> like you say, it was probably more a trend thing than anything else. Uh, do you have a preference? Yeah, do you have a preference? I mean, if I, I have a 77S with a rear drum and I have a 78RS with a disc, I still prefer the rear drum. Yeah, I think that uh, as far as a preference goes, uh, you know, I've had bikes with the, with a disc, with a drum, um, don't use the rear brakes a lot, yeah. personally. Um, so I don't think it really it matters that much. I don't, you know, uh, my favorite bikes are the model levers with the, and they have the, the drum and, they did that, of course, in the GS as well, and never really had any um, experience of that being anything negative at all. Yeah, and and the rear drum, the same same idea, same practices we discussed on the front drum really apply there. I have to say though, in all my years of riding, the rear the a rear drum brake rarely gets much attention from me, other than to make sure the cam arm's set up in the proper position, and when I rotate the wheel, the shoes aren't rubbing and that the pads don't get oil fouled. Other than that, it's kind of a set it and forget it. It is, yeah. You just want to make sure that you have the pivot points and things, uh, a little bit of lubricant on there, and uh, so that things can move and don't get corroded. And then, yeah, it's really just the, uh, the wing nut adjustment. There's nothing more to it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, moving on then, um, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time about the, on the rear disc here because... It, it is what it is. But as far as that goes, you're right. It is overly complicated. Yeah, anecdotally speaking, I remember when I got my RS last year, and that was the first thing I thought of, or first thing that crossed my mind when I was taking the part, taking the bike apart to refresh everything was good grief. All these parts, the link arms, the extra bracketry, all the extra weight involved. And really, am I getting much improvement on uh, a system that, like you say, most people don't use the rear brake as much. Um, I mean, right. it, it's fine for what it is. I, I agree, it's overly complicated, and uh, I'm glad I'm I'm glad they switched back to the uh, rear drum for the later models. Uh, all right, moving on now. Let's talk about disc brakes specifically. Uh, one setup that a lot of people complain about is the ATE setup. Uh, that was introduced on the Slash 6 series and I guess made it all the way up until the 81 models. First off, the ATE gets a lot of bad press. A lot of people think it's crappy and wooden. Uh, when properly set up, I still think it's adequate. What's just what's your overall opinion on that uh, setup when it's done correctly? Yeah, it's it, 
we're basically stuck with it. So we got to make the best of both. <laughs> okay. Right? And <laughs> and they they were never even even when the bikes were new they they weren't outstanding. But the disc brakes were kind of a new phenomenon, really, and they were probably as as good as anything available at the time when they came out in around 1974. There, um, so they, they they it's just that technology hasn't increased. Having just one piston rather than two is probably the biggest Achilles heel of that system and just the way that the whole thing works. But you're right. Uh, if you have them set up right, they, they work okay. And you, actually some of the newer um, discs that are available can can help a lot. There's like, for example, the EBC floating discs, and, and the, the, those work pretty well. Um, they have a, a good uh, friction uh, coefficient, and then the more modern, uh, you know, newer pad materials are are better than they used to be, I believe. And um, so the combination of that, you can get some pretty good uh, pretty good performance out of them. The, the key is the, the, the uh, adjustment uh, of that cam pin that's in the bottom. So there's that uh, plug that comes out, unscrews with a spring beneath it, and then you have to turn that cam right. um, to get the right, uh, connection or yeah to uh, alignment I guess or to to the uh, to the, the rotor and you do that by basically slightly pulling in on the uh, brake and then turning the cam um, back and forth until you find like a neutral spot and then you've got the best connection or or alignment of the pads to, to the uh, to the rotor yeah and then of course having solid sound hydraulics and all that. Also, the brake lines, if they're old and kind of, they get kind of squishy, you can lose a lot of feel there. Stainless lines are cool, or even just some, some new brake lines that don't have, you know, 30 years behind them or more. Um, that, all those little things. It's one of those things, as so many things on, on these motorcycles, it's, it's a, 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 a accumulation of many little details. Mm-hmm. That all, when they're all add up, it's okay. And it's, you, it's so many little details that all have to get as close to 100% when added up, and you get the best performance that you can. Let me ask you this. The, the personal observation on my part, I've had uh, uh, ATE setups with stainless steel and rubber lines, both new. Uh, am, I, am I sort of smoking something funny when I say the rubber line seems to be a, have a little bit more modulation and feel or flex to it? because it actually does move, constrict, uh, and expand a little bit over a stainless steel line? Or is that, again, just me trying to uh, look into something? And <laughs> am I right there or what? No, I think you are. I, I, the, the rubber, there's nothing wrong with the, with the rubber lines. They, they don't have a lot of expansion, but the, uh, that very little bit does give a, a little more smooth transition. Feel ba- feedback, I think, in the in the brake system. I- I've noticed and, that. Yeah, um, yeah. There's definitely something to that. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. So I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't tripping when I thought that because you know, like I no. said, I've had you know bikes that have come with you know new stainless steel lines a year or two old, and then here recently, the past few I've done, 
I've just gone ahead and just put on new rubber lines, and I actually kind of prefer the the feel uh, of those a little bit. So again, that might be a bit yeah. more of a preference or, or budget oriented thing. I guess the the other thing to mention on the on the ATE setup, and this will lead into um, another topic here on this, is the undertank master cylinder. Now I kind of have to give it to BMW aesthetically because it seems to me that that undertank master cylinder was purely from a design aesthetic standpoint, meaning they wanted to keep the master cylinder off the handlebar to keep a clean line of vision for the rider. Uh, at least that's my thought anyway. And it might've been more protected uh, in the event of a crash, I suppose as well. That being said, um, a couple of things I always wanna remember when I'm going through that system. One. Uh, you cover this in the videos too, is the feeler gauge tool unique to that setup. I've forgot a couple times to go back and put that feeler gauge in there on the plunger pin on the master cylinder and not gotten the right spacing there. And I've had the brakes lock up <laughs> or start to lock up on me before the pads start to rub after a short ride. Um, there's that that you have to keep in mind. And then also just the rubber O-rings because uh, on the master cylinder, one of the problems, especially with older bikes that have, haven't main, been maintained, is the fluid leaking from the master cylinder, destroying the paint on the frame, and then eventually getting down into, into some of the relays. And I bet you've seen that a lot over the years. Oh, yeah, definitely seen that a lot. <laughs> and the, 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 the generally leakage. You know, I, you know, I wonder sometimes why things happen the way they did. It, it could also be that, they had the it hadn't really developed the uh, master cylinder control unit uh, for the right hand combination unit there, and it was essentially they could continue to use essentially the same uh, control unit using a, a cable because that's really uh, yeah the big difference between the uh, drum uh, front control unit as uh, or the uh, disc one you know so there might have been a little bit of a just a process of the, you know, the evolution of technology or even, even the cost of, of putting the master cylinder up on top. Yeah. There might've been something with that. Yeah. You know what? You bring up a good point. I never really thought of that. It is a, still a combination of a, it's a, it's a cable driven hydraulic system for all intents and purposes. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's not a lot different too than, than the uh, brake systems that were kind of remote, actuated brakes that are in the automotive industry both for for the uh you know like for car the, the um brake and clutch um so it, it seemed probably pretty logical at the time to do it that way and and then aesthetically we look at it now and say that's pretty cool that you don't see anything on the handlebar but i i bet you that it was maybe uh not that was probably not the driving factor was was that it was just a simpler way to do it and yeah, it is a problem out of sight, out of mind. You don't go down there enough, and then they start leaking, and um, they they probably, for safety reasons, just needed to finally come around and put the thing up on the handlebar like everybody else. Yep. Now let's talk about a upgrading the ATE, and that'll get us into the 81 and on uh, disc setup for the front. So it is a popular modification for a slash six, slash seven series, I guess, to do to get rid of the undertank master cylinder and 
uh, modify that with a later handlebar master cylinder. Now I've not done that. I've seen modify. I've seen those modifications done. Uh, I'm sure you've probably done a few uh, over the years. If my memory serves me correctly. It's a it's a pretty expensive uh, upgrade as far as parts go. Is it not? It's very expensive, um, and it it didn't it wasn't always that way. Um, quite a number of years ago, you could buy the master cylinder uh, complete, complete handlebar assembly with lever everything directly from Magura. And they even had, a, if you look at an older Magura catalog, maybe 10 years ago even, they had a classic ses- section in their, in their print and uh, PDF catalogs where you could, you could buy those straight from Magura. And they were rather inexpensive, relatively speaking. But this turned out to be a product that uh, BMW uh, had Magura build for them, and BMW made the specifications. So there's two two ways things happen. They, they BMW can go to the, a manufacturer and say, "Hey, here's the drawings, built, make this for us," and then it's really a BMW proprietary product. And the other one is, "Hey, we need this uh, something that does this," and they say, "Okay, we'll fig- we'll sort it out." And does this work for you? And oh yeah, that's what we needed. Okay, cool. And then that that's something that is available usually in the aftermarket. It's a big distinction. And um, and so at some point in time, Magura or I'm sorry, BMW kind of s- stopped Magura from selling those parts that mm. were proprietary, and they even had to pay a big fine. Wow. And um, and so they stopped selling them, and so now you can only get them from BMW directly, and they um, probably don't sell a lot of them, so the, uh, the, the uh, price has definitely gone up from what it used to be. So it used to make a lot of sense to do it, so that's why you'll still see a lot of those modifications out there, because there was a time when, when that was like, you know, $250, $300 deal, and it was done, you were done, you know? Yeah. And now I think it's substantially more than that. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen in other places, folks have put, you know, essentially a quote-unquote kit together. They had, you know, buy all the parts, assemble everything you need, but good grief. I mean, it's six, seven, eight hundred $800, maybe even more by the time, you know, if you're in that far, then you're going to get, you know, new rotors and everything else. Next thing you know, you've got a thousand, $1,200 uh, <laughs> front brake job and i mean you know if you want to do it go for it you know uh but yeah Yeah, that's interesting that's an interesting backstory on that i didn't know um they were cheap and then bmw said eh not so fast um yeah i want to talk a little bit about two uh just touch on this real quick bleeding uh front brake uh setup i've seen on your videos you often use uh some sort of doohickey hooked up to an air compressor uh, and a little handheld uh, cylinder or canister or something. Uh, that's probably your preferred method for the home mechanic. Uh, and you've probably been in this position too. Generally, most of us are, are using the classic thing you get from the auto parts store, the little hand pumper thing. And that suffices, uh, obviously. My MO has always been just to get the best pressure I can using the hand pump uh, and then just do the zip tie thing uh, on the on the front brake lever to the handlebar, uh, maybe one night, compress it, you know, let it get get its level, and then do it a second night. A- after a couple days of that, I'm usually fine. Uh, I mean, am I missing am I uh, am I missing something there or what? No, that's a, that's a good way to do it too, uh, because all we're really trying to do is is get rid of all air bubbles, right? And 
And so you're just, you know, using physics to let the air travel up and out. And that, that works just as well as trying to, you know, force it down through there. It may be, it may, in many cases, even better. I do like to use a vacuum um, bleeder because it's it's a pretty efficient way. You can use it as a vacuum cleaner to, to get all the old fluid out, mm-hmm. of, out of the master cylinder for starters, you know, and then you can just really flush it through to get rid of all the gunk and all that sort of thing. But I usually even, not usually, but always, when even after bleeding with the um, vacuum bleeder, I'll go ahead and do it manually myself just to make sure that I get the right feel. And basically, uh, really just... Um, Pump, pump it up a bunch of a few times the the handle and, and then and then while you're applying pressure to the handle simultaneously crack the bleeder valve mm-hmm. and let it go all let it go pretty much all the way to the to the grip and then tighten the bleeder valve let it, let the handle go pump it a couple times and just repeat that that works really well a way you don't get any any uh, air coming back in and you you get a, a one way flow and if you just do that i think that works really well if you want to not have to wait a couple of days like the procedure (laughs) you talk about you want to get it over with (laughs) and that that really works fine and you the only one word that gets a little bit difficult is on the mono levers that have the 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 single line going down and the crossover yeah that that can be a real a real bugger to get all the air out of that out of that yeah yeah good but on on the lines that go straight down to the calipers, I mean, that's, you, you just can work it, you'll get it, you'll get it out, no problem, which take, takes a, a full can of brake fluid and a little bit of time, done. Well, you, you mentioned the, the next uh, point of conversation here, which is the later Brembo, and I remember when you did the, uh, what was it, the 85 uh, monolever to the S conversion, uh, on your video series, you had that had that Brembo brake setup. I think with the single line to the split. Uh, I, I've right. ne- I've never messed with those. Uh, it stands to reason it would be a little bit more challenging. You've essentially got three lines that you're bleeding uh, ostensibly instead of two. Um, but overall, the the Brembos uh, eighty one on were a big improvement. No. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah. And and really, that the design is was relevant for many many years. And uh, yeah, it's good brakes. Yeah, yeah. As far as the hydraulics go, absolutely. So, last thing I want to touch on here, you mentioned this a little bit uh, about rotors, EBC floating rotors. Uh, I've seen a lot of guys go, especially on a GS uh, with a larger a larger rotor, bigger rotor, of course. Then uh, you can go into different uh, calipers with, you know, three, four, five pistons, six pistons, whatever. I don't know. I, I've never done any of those. I don't know exactly what's out there. But um, generally speaking, uh, if you were looking to upgrade a, an outfit, sort of G, a GS like that, uh, what, what, what would be your recommendation and sort of uh, aftermarket upgrades uh, maybe on a GS front end where somebody's really wanting to get the most uh, they can? Okay. Yeah, those, those six piston calipers. I think they were Harrison, maybe. Yeah, that's sure, right. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know if those are available anymore. You know, you might find some around someplace. They were pretty popular, and I've I've ridden bikes that had them on there. I installed a few back in the day, and they definitely have a lot of bite. But that's probably not viable option 
Um, cause I don't, like I said, they're not available. So you'd be lucky to find a set. Um, and then getting replacement pads and there's a, probably a lot of things to consider there, but the bigger, uh, diameter definitely works. I mean, it's just really a matter of mathematics and yeah. it, it have, it, it gives you a little bit, a little bit more. And it's simple because it's just a, a rotor replacement. You might need a new rotor anyway. And then the, uh, including, including the, uh, bracket to move the caliper out just that, that much that's needed. And it, it, they definitely do make a difference. Well, I, I, I think. All right. Uh, well, as, as you can get probably best, best bang for your buck as far as improving the brake performance. All right. Let me make an observation here and then you can comment on that observation. Again, you tell me if I'm off base okay. here. Uh, I, I'm in the Arkansas Ozarks and I am off tarmac, off road as much as I'm on road. And where I live, I have steep hills, uh, loose gravel, limestone, bedrock, dirt, mud, water crossings, you name it. I found that I prefer a stock brake, a Brembo, something that's not as grabby in those situations as opposed to something with a big rotor, uh, more pistons that's going to have a lot more stopping power and feel. There, I, there's something to be said for, in my opinion, especially when I'm off-road a lot, not having the ability <laughs> really to lock up the front brake at will. It's almost nicer having a softer touch. So you know what happens. You lock up the front brake off-road, you're twisting either left or right, and, and, and down you go. Uh, I don't know how much okay. off-road riding you do, but again, that's just sort of an observation I have. I don't want, I don't want the biggest, best brake system necessarily on my R80 GS. You know, I want something that you know works, but I don't want it to work too well. Is that crazy? No, it's not crazy at all. You know, it, it really uh, always comes down to what your intended use is for yeah. the motorcycle. And, yeah. and it's great that you're off-road a lot. I loved riding off-road too. Have, have done this for many years. A lot of folks don't, you know, so if you, if you're, if your focus is having uh, a, a little bit better stopping power to stop at a little shorter distance on, on, on the tarmac, then I think that that's where, when a bigger rotor is, uh, something to consider or making any kind of modifications like that. But, but as far as when you're off road and doing a lot of gravel roads, like you are talking about, yeah, there's the, the stock brakes are absolutely totally sufficient and probably preferable. I totally agree with you on that. Good. All right. Well, we'll leave it there, William. Uh, that's going to be a wrap. Thanks for talking brakes. Now back to our conversation with Elspeth Beard. That that leads me into another sort of topic uh, for discussion here. I imagine when you returned home um, from the trip, it you know, gosh, just having the world around you stop uh, and having time to breathe was just uh, something really difficult to get used to right off the bat. Uh, but I'm wondering when did and, and you know, considering what you had done. You probably felt like, gosh, I just accomplished this amazing thing and I'm back home. Uh, where's my life going to go? But at the same time, um, since you hadn't been doing any writing or correspondence with any magazines, I don't want to say nobody knew what you had accomplished and done, but it was probably kind of, kind of low key. When did the sort of notoriety and recognition of the trip start? 
start to grab and take hold, and I'm talking about maybe even prior to the book being written. When when were people starting to notice uh, what you had accomplished or wanted to find out more? Well, I suppose it was probably, I think it was 2008, so okay. about 35 years later. So, wow. So when I got back, I think I tried to contact a few bike, bike magazines, and they were just kind of, no, and I, you know, we're not interested, um, and that was it. So, um, which was kind of fine. I mean, I'd done it for myself and whatever. Yeah. And so I... I, so it was in 2008, and, uh, and um, a friend of mine was talking to somebody at BMW and mentioned this trip that I'd done um, in the early 80s. And, and so Andy said to Paul, well, why don't you put a, a, a short story together and we will uh, and we'll put it up on, on, the, on our you know, international website? So, so Paul and you know, I, you know, we kind of, Paul and I put this story together. And then it was, and it had a few images, some of the, you know, the black and white pictures, which have now become uh, supposedly iconic. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and I think, and, and so then it, it went up on the BMW International website, and um, that was 2008. And then it just suddenly went, like, everywhere. It went, and I think it was that image that seemed to sort of capture people's imagination or something, and thought, my God, who's this woman, and what's she done, and... And then, and that's really when when the story started to get out there and grow, and that it was reposted and reblogged and whatever it happened. I don't really understand it all. Um, so, and I was sort of totally unaware of this, really, because I don't really go out. I mean, I only use Google to find out, you know, roofing tiles or insulation. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. You know, I'm not going to put my name in. So, so I was almost sort of <laughs> totally, uh, you know, unaware that all this this stuff was going on about me. And then it was 2014 that I was contacted. That's right. This, this agent in Hollywood found found one of the articles on the internet and contacted me completely out of the blue and said they were interested in buying the rights to my story to make a film. Hmm. <laughs> How crazy is that? Wow. And, and then I started to kind of look on the internet, and there was like all this stuff about me, and I was going, whoa, where did that come from? And, um, and so anyway, I was flown out to Hollywood and... You know, they were wined and dined and they were really nice to me. And, but I kind of think, it was then I thought, well, A, that people are interested in what I did, so maybe I should write a book. And I, and I wanted there to be a book first before Hollywood got hold of it, you know, and then made it into kind of their story. Um, I wanted there to be an accurate, um, you know, um, uh, you know, record of what I'd done, and I wanted it, to, uh, and I wanted the opportunity to tell my story first. So, um, so I kind of said, said thanks, but no thanks, and I came back home, and then it was two years to write the book, um, and also I couldn't actually remember a lot of the trip. I'm <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You know, there were people in my diaries that I don't even remember meeting. You know, so it was it was a very weird experience going because I'd never read any of my diaries. Of course, when I got home, I just packed, packed them all away in a box, and that's where they'd stayed for thirty five years. So I'd never read any of them um, apart from when I was writing them. So it was a it was a very weird experience. Um, and then, of course, since my book's been published, my kind of whole life has changed again. So, yeah. It's, I mean, it's been an extraordinary journey, yet another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
That's interesting. So the the sort of movie offer came prior to the book, which is a little bit unusual. Usually, producers are buying the rights to a book to make to a, make into a movie. So, uh, has there is there still a possibility uh, that we could uh, see something? Uh, yeah, well, it's sort of rumbling along, okay. I should say. I don't want to say too much more. Sure. Um, it's, you know, these things take a long time. Yeah. A lot of stuff falls by the wayside. Um, so I don't know, to be honest with you. I have no idea where it's going to go. Uh, it might happen one day or not. Yeah. No that but perp- yes, I mean, there are... Uh, I mean, I did have a, a um, option agreement for about two and a half years. That came to an end, and now I'm in discussions with other people. Okay, so, so yeah. Different. Well, as you say, it, it will or it won't. Exactly. All right. I leave it in the hands of fate. Yeah, very good. I want to do a little sort of compare and contrast here. Uh, I w- in, in reading through the book, I was always – I did a similar trip to you, to yours, uh, across the United States about 10 years after you. So for me, it was in 1992, I was on a slash five, uh, with a friend and it was about, it, it was similar to the sort of trip you did here when you were in the States, um, you know, sort of through the Southern U S uh, up through the coast, through the Rocky mountains, it was about four months. And I can remember back then that was of course, pre-internet days, um, banking was completely different. Um, you just didn't go up to an ATM and take out a hundred dollars. It wasn't that even back, even then in the nineties, it wasn't that simple. Um, <clears throat> I wonder when you, when you probably do some traveling today or when you reflect back on there, um, gosh, I'm thinking about the, the gear you wore, the fact you were using paper maps, you had to carry cash. Um, what it's so much different today than it is, than it was back then, but would you have had it any differently? I think the fact that we, that we don't have some of those things available make at sometimes can make for a more interesting, uh, trip filled with, with stories and unexpected twists. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. I think, I think these days there's far too much technology that takes over um, but I, but where I, but things I would be have been appreciative of is, you know, is better gear with armor. Yeah. Um, in it, and 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 decent waterproof gear. I mean, I, I mean, my gear was rubbish. I mean, I had a, you know, I had a leather jacket which I wore all the time, and I had this flimsy bit of, you know, thin waterproof thing that I would put over it if it rained, which was kind of semi-waterproof so my leather jacket got wet quite yeah a i mean it was pre- I, it's I pretty useless yeah it's pretty useless yeah and and so i think i think you know as far as the gear goes you know these days it's it's you know it's fantastic um and i and, and my helmet i had an old bell helmet that was really loose really noisy yeah you know, I, the visor was rubbish. I couldn't see out of it. So it's stuff like that I would definitely have been grateful for then. But things like all the technology and all the social media that people get sucked into and all the laptops and iPads and, and blogging every day and telling everybody where they are every five minutes. And, and um, <laughs> I know. 
and following uh, following a blue line on the screen and not looking at a map, that I definitely would not. I would far rather do it the way that I did it, far rather. I am uh, 100% in agreement with you. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't own a GPS. Uh, I think I may have mentioned in our email conversations, I don't even own a cell phone. Uh, so, you know, when I go for a ride, uh, if it's somewhere unfamiliar, I still have paper maps uh, that I use. In I fact, do as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good for you. And here we have uh, in the States, we have a thing called a gazetteer, which is like a road atlas uh, on steroids for a particular state. So, for instance, I live in Arkansas. You can get an Arkansas gazetteer that is like 120 pages of maps, not just two pages of maps. So it breaks it out into, you know, uh, like uh, one mile or five mile square plots on the map. And the detail uh, on the map is just incredible. You know, it shows you where you can go uh, put in for a canoe spot or where there's a fishing hole or a historic building or things like that. And those are just things, even the most uh, advanced GPS or mapping systems don't have that kind of detail that you find on a map. And, you know, plus I just, you know, like you say, the blue line on the phone, that doesn't seem terribly adventurous mm. or exciting to me. Mm. But yes, because the thing is, if you, if you, if you're able to plan every, every minute of every day, you know, where you're going to buy petrol, where you're going to have lunch, where you're going to stay that night, exactly the road you're going to go on. You actually take away all the adventure. You take away, as you said, all of the you know unknown, the you know the crazy situations that you find yourself in when you're, you know, when you end up in the middle of nowhere or you get lost. I mean, I'm, I I met the most incredibly uh, kind, interesting people. I stayed with with families in Southeast Asia just because I was lost. Yeah. I just got totally and utterly lost. It was late in, in, in the afternoon. I ended up staying with them. And that's, that's the journey. That's the adventure. It's not sitting on your bike, riding it six hours a day. That's, that's, just, <laughs> that's just the tool that allows you to have the adventure. Well said. The adventure is all these extraordinary experiences that you, you, and situations that you find yourself in. And also in these situations that you find yourself in, and you have to problem solve. You have to you have to work through it. You have to you have to decide how you're going to fix this or get out of the problem or sort things out. And that is the that's the journey. That's the adventure. It is a hundred percent. And most of the most most of the memorable events on motorcycle trips I've had seem to, or memorable memorable events I should say on motorcycle trips I've had seem to have started with some sort of small problem uh, or issue. And then what what ends up blossoming out of that is often the most memorable part of the trip. So, exactly. yes. So you and I are both saying, put the GPS down, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you just have it there. I yeah. mean, you know, have a phone. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't use the technology. You know, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it, 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 I mean, it, it gives people a huge comfort factor, the fact that they have a phone, that they feel they can, if they do 
fall off their bike, end up in the ditch on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. I mean, how fantastic to have a phone. You can you can reach out and you can phone somebody. You can get some. I mean, so but just switch it off and only use it when you have to use it. And don't look at your emails every five minutes. And you're, you know, <laughs> just too much. <laughs> get away. You're you know, trying to get away from all of that. That's it. Another thing I want to ask you about here is a term uh, I call helmet thoughts. And when I put that in parentheses, I, I think you know what I mean. Um, I'm sure you still have those today uh, when you go out and ride. That's one of the great things about motorcycling, I think, for a lot of people, uh, is just being able to get away and have some time to yourself um, and work some work some things out, maybe. Um, so, but gosh, uh, I, I'm thinking on your trip, and you were, you know, much younger then. Uh, and of course, you wrote a lot about this in the book. You know, I could tell uh, in in reading through parts of it, you were, you know, trying figuring things out. Let's put it that way. You had relation, you know, relationships, uh, other things that happened on the trip. You have a lot of time to yourself uh, to think about that. If you could just maybe encapsulate that a little bit, how how that uh, helps helped you. Uh, to get to where you are in life uh, today and how that time alone and those helmet thoughts are, are beneficial to you? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, yeah, I did. Yeah, there, there is something very special about putting your helmet on and your head's in its own space. Yeah. And I did, uh, actually, a lot of the time on my trip, I would spend thinking about my my bike and when I would next service her and when I could where I could get oil next and I was constantly working out my miles per gallon um, and as I say because my money was so tight I I was constantly working and then thinking about how much I'd spent on the you know the, the the campsite the night before and how much money I had left. So I spent a lot of time doing all of that. Okay, so you're saying um, let me jump in. So you're saying you know you were doing calculations and uh, you know running the numbers so to speak more often than not. Um, yeah, all the time. Okay. Every time I filled up with petrol, I would I would I would think now last time I filled up the. You know the you know the the the, the mileage is this. I've done this. I've done this number of miles. I've filled up with X amount of gallons or liters. So that's this, and I work it all out constantly. Be working out how much how much petrol she was using, and then and then what I would do, like 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 going across Australia, because that was just like. Yeah, fifteen hundred miles of nothing. Right. So it was, it was sections of it. So it was perfect time to really test it all out. So then I would fill up, and then I did it at different speeds. So then I'd do an average speed of fifty, then I'd do an average speed of fifty-five, and then sixty, and then and I'd fill up like in between, and I'd do this. And so then I'd work out exactly what she did, how many miles per gallon she did at every different speed if I kept it constant. So it was this constant cal- calculation. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. I don't know why. I don't know why. It was just something to think about. And um, <laughs> then I did, as you said, I, I, I had these various relationships and trying to come to terms with things and my parents. Uh, so there was all that going around in my yeah, head yeah. as well. well and that's... you do sort of, I mean, I don't know whether you actually resolve uh, issues. Um 
I think it sort of helps you think it through. Yeah. Uh, although you can, you, you can end up just going round and round and round and round with it all, which probably isn't very helpful sometimes. Well, I mean, I can, um, I can say I've had an epiphany or two, you know, when I've been on the bike for a few hours if I wanted to think about something. But I'm not surprised to hear, though, your thoughts were leaning to the practical side of things uh, uh, on the trip. That, that makes a lot of sense. So what? Yeah, constantly. Yeah. yeah. So what? I mean, uh, I don't know if you remember the exact figures, but I mean, so what kind of miles per gallon were you getting? I used to get about sixty, sixty-five. Wow. Wow. Which is pretty good. That's impressive. Yeah. But then if I went, if I went over, but 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 the optimum speed was between fifty-five and sixty, and sure. then I would probably get slightly more, and then I'd get more. The minute I went over. The minute I hit seventy, it went down considerably. It went down to uh, I I can't remember, but it suddenly dropped. So it was, those factors were quite interesting because I, I never knew when I was going to need that information. Yeah, true. You know, I didn't know, and there were bits in Australia where there wasn't any petrol for three, four, five hundred miles, and so I had to know very accurately what mm-hmm. exactly what the bike used and what speed I would have to travel and what was the optimum speed to get out, you know, to get the maximum amount of miles out of her to get to the next petrol station. So it was useful information I was storing up in case I needed it. Surely there was a time where you switched to reserve on the Petcocks and were just sweating it out uh hoping there was a filling station somewhere and miraculously you made it. I want to say, if I remember right, um, gosh, so you're saying when you flipped on reserve, you would have about 50 to 55 miles uh, range left on that bike? Yes, yes. But actually, I because you know with the petrol taps on those airheads, if you take the petrol tap out, you've got two straws. Right, right. A long straw and then a shorter straw, which is obviously the, the, the reserve. Well, what I did is on one of the petrol taps, I cut the, the long straw, so it was in between the long on the other side and the short reserve. So I had two reserves. I, I basically meant that I, I gave myself a second warning, if you yeah. feel something. Yes. So, so, so I would turn, so it, it would run out of petrol, so then I would turn the reserve tap on one side, which would take it down to, to the next straw, and then I would turn it on again to take it down to the next straw on the other side. So I, I, I balanced it out, so I had like, like two reserves. So I, I had a second warning. Yeah, that it it is an uneasy feeling to say the least when you're on reserve and you just don't know what's in front of you gas wise. What about? I'm curious. Uh, just this line of conversation we're, we're going on here. What about the fuel quality uh, back then? I imagine it varied from continent to continent, place to place. Was it leaded gasoline back then? You know, what was the it deal? Was pretty, it was leaded pretty much everywhere from memory. It was. It was. Uh, obviously, America and Australia was fine. Yeah. Southeast Asia wasn't too bad. I think this when I hit India, it got it was pretty it, it was pretty variable, should I say? Um, and then, yeah, India and Pakistan, it was 
hit-and-miss, to be honest. I, I, I've had bad batches of fuel. But that's another thing about those old bikes, is they kind of almost run on anything. I mean, not quite, but, you know, they just don't run very well, but they'll still go. Um, and I was constantly cleaning the carbs out, which, again, because the carbs are right there, mm-hmm. it's just to flip the float thing off and clean it all out. So, um and then, and then I got to uh, so Pakistan, and then I got into Iran, where actually it was very good in Iran, surprisingly. Um, but in fact, Iran was the only place I ran out of petrol, mm. uh, which was which was bizarre because it was the cheapest. It was it was so cheap in Iran. It was like ten cents a gallon or something. I mean, it was so ridiculously cheap there. Um, and it's the only place I ran out of petrol, and it was about 250 yards from a petrol station. Oh, well, that's not the only bad. only place on the entire journey I ran out. Yeah, that's not bad. Now, I can't remember. Did you? I, I guess you weren't even carrying a little fuel cell or a little fuel bottle, were you? I only carried, I carried fuel uh, in, uh, I bought a, um, a fuel can in Australia, and I filled it up and carried it along certain sections, because there were sections that uh, it was, I think it was nearly 500 miles between petrol stations. Yeah. Then, I mean, now it isn't come now, I'm sure you can get petrol a lot more easily, but then it was about, about 450 or 500 miles. So I did carry fuel about three or four times uh, in Australia, and that was it. That was the only time. Last question. Uh, I'm just, my curiosity's got me here. So in the States, we have a lot of places have ethanol fuel these days. Uh, which is, you know, pretty rough on an engine. Um, <clears throat> the part of uh, the state states I live in here in Arkansas, we're fortunate that we still have non-ethanol fuel pretty uh, widely available here. What uh, what is just what's the fuel situation in in Great Britain now? Is it is it crappy fuel? There is one petrol company, Esso, and they do um, they do um, uh, the old petrol. And, and I fill all my old bikes, uh, all my bikes up with that, and even my car actually, even my old car. I've got an old car which I fill up. Um, so, but there's only the one, you know, the one uh, petrol company that that still do it. Okay. So it's possible. It Good. is possible to get it. Good. All right, Elspeth. I want to ask you now, changing uh, subjects, and then I got a few more sort of wrap up questions um, before we finish up here. Um, Curious, I'm trying to think of how, this is kind of a two-part question. I guess the first thing I want to ask you is, do you think you've made the transition uh, nowadays from being the quote-unquote first female from Britain to circumnavigate the globe on a motorcycle? Uh, have, Have we gone far enough where the female part of that moniker or description isn't as important as it used to be do you still do you just see yourself as a motorcyclist uh how is that part of being a woman is it still important and and relevant to you um well i think interestingly when i first started riding i didn't see myself as a female motorcyclist and i've always thought of myself as just a motorcyclist right i think it's more in this age where you people are very keen to stick labels on everything and put you in pigeonholes and um which actually I don't like at all. 
I, I, I don't see myself as a female motorcyclist. I'm just a motorcyclist. And I don't like uh, women being kind of um, separated out. As if, I mean, I get, for example, uh, invited to do lots of, or not lots, but, you know, join tours as the guest rider, and it's going to be an all-female uh, group. And although in some ways I can understand why, you know, I think female riders do enjoy riding with other women. Um, and so, but, but I don't like to make this distinction at all. And I never have. I just see myself as a motorcyclist. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. And, you know, for instance, a lot of times I'll be looking at gear, motorcycle gear for my wife or something, maybe a jacket or whatever. And inevitably, something always has to be in pink, which is <laughs> ridiculous. I mean, that, I know, but at least at least now women can get motorcycle gear. Yes, when I did my trip, all my gear was had been made for men. Well, now I mean, you. It was all, baggy in the wrong places, it was all really badly fitting, it was all too big here, too small, <laughs> True. too short, you know, and, but I mean, the boots that I wore, um, I, I think they were a whole size too big for me because they were the smallest boots I could get. Wow. Yeah. It's not cut for your hips or, you know, anything like it's that. It's not cut for anything. It's cut for a man. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's, I mean, I think gear now is a lot better cut for everybody you know i think it's much more styled now than it ever used to be but you know when i left on my trip there, there just wasn't gear for, for women did you or otherwise <laughs> yeah yeah right Had, did you hear or um just wondering after the book came out um did you start to maybe hear from other female adventure riders or touring riders uh who were calling you or writing you, uh, just sort of pick your brain uh, about about your trip and maybe what they were planning. Yes, I think. Well, I've had I've had hundreds of letters and emails from people, which has been great. And interestingly, when I when I think I, when I when when the book first came out, I thought that most of them would be from from you know other women. But I would say it's probably about half and half, if not more men rather than women. Okay. Um, which I think is, was, was a surprise to me. Um, but, you know, it's fine. It's great. I don't, I don't mind at all. Um, I think I, I get a lot of emails from women who are very nervous, very apprehensive about doing trips, and, you know, what advice can I give them? Um and things like that, uh, and is it okay to travel alone? And so I kind of give, what, what, you know, well, I, 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 I sort of tell them how I dealt with it and how I approached the whole thing of traveling alone. Um, but really, but I mean, when it comes to you know planning routes and all that, I mean, my trip was so long ago. It's yeah. All of, all of the stuff that I did is like irrelevant. Um, so it's really more, I think, helping women get into the mental state of having the confidence and courage to go, and to uh, and to do the trips, and to and to do them alone, and not to be, you know, afraid. Um, so, but yeah, so I, I have had a lot, and I think I hope I've I've helped a lot. I mean, I've had emails back from them saying, "Oh, it's fantastic." Because I, I always say one of the hardest things is just leaving. 
Because once you leave and you're on the road, you, you realise how easy it is. I mean, it's this huge mental step of actually, you know, leaving is, is you know, is, is the hard part. Um, so, and also you have to remember that, you know, most people around the world are really nice people. <laughs> They're nice, friendly, helpful, kind people who That's will do whatever they can to help you. They're not out to murder you or whatever or steal from you or, you know, it's, it, that's, a, that's an incredibly small percentage. Um, and if you're really careful and you're sensible, you can avoid most of those people, uh, you know. And, and all, you know, all, literally you will meet so many incredibly friendly people who will do whatever they can to help you. And that's what you have to keep in mind rather than thinking everybody out there is out to get you. Um, so, and I think once you get that and understand that, then it all becomes much, much easier. Yeah. Well, that's great. So it sounds like it was more, uh, building, if somebody wrote you or had some questions, it was more of a confidence builder, uh, than anything else. Yes, I think so. I think they were just apprehensive and weren't sure mm-hmm. whether they were doing, you know, it, it, so it's just trying to, well, just share my experiences really. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I think if we, if I could put it into two sentences, it would be keep your head on a swivel and just go for it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Elspeth. So I want to ask you a few questions here that we ask all our guests. I know a lot of folks are going to be interested to hear some of your uh, replies and responses to this. So uh, the first one we ask everybody is, and I'll be real specific in the question here, your four favorite airheads, meaning your four favorite BMWs produced from 1970 uh, up until we need the caveat here, all the way up until 1997 uh, because of your bike, but your four favorite BMWs of that uh, airhead run. And I think okay. I know two. In, I think I know two of them. <laughs> In no particular order. <laughs> I would say, obviously, my uh, R60-XX and uh, R80GS, basic. Uh, I then, I have a real fondness for the R75-5 because I've owned two of them. Um, I flew out to America before I did my my round-the-world trip and bought an old R75-5 and laid it across to the the East Coast, and then I bought another one here. So I have a real fondness uh, for the... um, for the 75-5, and then lastly, but certainly not least, is the R90S. Perfect. I'll accept uh, all four of those, and yeah, the the Slash 5 750, really close uh, in a lot of ways to the 60-6. I guess the big difference there would be the gauges, uh, among other things, would be the gauges. Yeah, I love the headlight. I just yeah. love I love the key. Yep. <laughs> In fact, you can start it with a screwdriver. <laughs> and it's got a kick, kickstart on it, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I forgot. That's right, the, the screwdriver or the nail. Um, yeah. <laughs> or the nail, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I had mine, uh, I bought it when I was in college, and I had a couple friends that had some slash twos. Uh, at the time, and I'd be in the, you know, be sitting in a bar somewhere, and I'd look out, and some guy would just had taken off on my bike. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he was a friend of mine, but uh, you know, he was just doing it despite me to get my goat. Uh, okay, uh, so yes, those are a good four. 
Uh, all right. This, this question is going to cover a lot of time, uh, meaning a, a wide range of experiences for you. Uh, I want to know your worst breakdown where things just absolutely could have absolutely gone to crap and you thought this is it. I'm, you know, I'm done. This is the worst thing ever to happen. Or, um, a breakdown where you had a, you thought that same thing, but miraculously something happened or someone helped you and, and you pulled it out. What, what's one of those stories you, you like to reflect on? Well, I think one of them was probably my first major breakdown, which was in Australia where my bike caught fire. So basically the whole wiring loom from the battery to the whole of the front of the bike completely burnt out. So I was riding along and this kind of white um, plumes of smoke or whatever came up from under the tank. And I was kind of in, I mean, I'd been riding for hundreds of miles with nothing. I hadn't seen a, a you know, a shed or a shack or, or anything. And, um, and so I pulled the bike over and I tried to kind of stuff a jumper underneath the tank. I mean, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I'd never, I'd never experienced a, a sort of bike fire before and I was expecting the whole thing to blow up. Um, anyway, so, so once it was all kind of quietened down, um, I, I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do now? Because I knew there was no way I could fix this on, on the side of the road. And, um, and I looked down the road, literally, about a quarter of a mile, there was a, I saw a shack, and there was a, like a blue sign, and it said, also electrician. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make it up. I mean, it was almost as if she'd chosen to, to break down there. So anyway, I thought, oh, I can't believe this. So I wheeled the bike up, and um, and, it, and it turned out that this guy was was from England. He was actually from Wales. His name was John. He was a car mechanic, and and he looked at it and he said, well, I've never worked on a motorbike before, but 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 he looked at it and he said, but all this looks looks very much because the BMs are so basic. It's literally everything is. And I think a lot of the parts are probably from my car anyway. So he looked at it and said, oh, no. So then we got out my Haynes manual and we spent four days making a wiring loom from scratch. Um, so he had it. Unfortunately, he only had two color wires. He only had brown and black. <laughs> <laughs> so even to this day, so all the wires from my battery back are the original colored wires, and then all the wires from my battery to the front of my bike are all black and brown. Now, is that that's how it still really, is? That how it still is today? And that's how it still is, and it still works. That's so, amazing. You know, yeah, they did a bloody good job. Um, so that was probably the worst. I mean, you know, I broke down. I didn't break down that much, but I would say most of my problems were electrical problems. They were they were irritating. They were white because my bike was old. I mean, when I left, my bike yeah. was already seven or eight years old when I started the trip. She already had 45,000 miles on her. So she was a kind of fairly well-used bike at the beginning. So, you know, it, it just took its toll, really. The journey, the rough roads, the everything, it just took its toll on her. Well, I should um, mention, yeah, I should mention you tell that story in a little bit more detail uh, in the book. Uh, as well. So we did, uh, do want to mention uh, Lone Rider. Uh, if you haven't got a copy of it, uh, go out and get one. I ordered uh, my copy off Amazon, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, 
uh, in preparation for our interview. And that's a great story about uh, the wiring loom. Do you, do you happen to recall, did you figure out what the cause was of the... Yes, yes, because I, th- I think three days beforehand, I had a problem starting her. And, I, and I'd taken the tank off, and I'd fiddled with the wires under the tank. And, and I think John and I worked out that it was a wire to the conden- one of the condensers under the... The condenser under the tank, or the... Oh, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, there's one of the wires, on, and I'd moved it, and I hadn't put it back, and it was that that had rubbed. So basically, the tank had rubbed through this wire and shorted it out. That so was actually my own fault, to be to be fair. Interesting. Um, so that's that's what we sort of because that's that's where it started. I think John worked out that that's where it it, it, it had started, and I could remember moving the wire to get to something else, and then I didn't tuck it all back properly. Um, so I think that's that's that that's what happened. Yeah. Well, that's uh, as a lot of us can attest to. Uh, it's always the if something goes wrong, it's always the last thing you touched <laughs> that's mm. all that's often the problem um yeah and and the lesson actually is to do things you know i was probably in a bit of a rush i was on the uh-huh. side of the road i was tired i was thirsty i was hot i just wanted to get on the bike you know it's those moments you have to just work steadily uh, the the key thing with maintenance is patience you good have point. to be patient and methodical Good point. And not ever rush anything. Good point. Uh, okay, else with one design flaw, and let's keep this uh, to your bike, to the 60-6. One design flaw that uh, you could go back in time and tell the BMW engineers, please don't do this on my bike. Uh, I will uh, pay you anything. Change this. <laughs> let's take the time machine. What is that one thing you would have told them to change if you could have? The one thing I would tell them is do not put the contact breakers point right in front of the engine at the bottom where all the dirt and the crap from the road gets thrown up on them. It's just the most stupid place for them to be. The number of times I must have taken that front cover off to clean all the sand and the dust and the mud out of those points because they put this little seal around which is supposed to keep it all, you know, um, clean and, well, you know, the seal lasts about, you know, whatever. I mean, once you've taken the seal off in and out three or four times, then it never sits back properly. The cover's really awkward to get on. You know, you can't line up. It's just a pain and it's it's a really bad place to have the point. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because you're the first person to mention that uh, particular design uh, flaw or something that you would change. I'm keenly aware of that. I have, you know, a 90S, I have a 100S and a 78RS. So I have all those bikes uh, that had points in the front. I've since, since changed the electronic ignition. Uh, but the reason I'm keenly aware of that too is where I live, I have to go through water crossings. Uh, especially in the yeah. especially in the spring uh, and parts of the summer when we get heavy rain here, so I have to take the timing cover off uh, on occasion and dump water out. Yeah. So I yeah. know it's just the most stupid place to have it. Yeah. I mean, why? You know, it is the 
probably you know the place that gets all the rubbish thrown up by the front wheel. Yes. It's just, anyway. Yes, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and you think of most Japanese bikes of that era, they had it on, uh, I don't know which side, the right or left side, you know, uh, kind of yeah. out of the way uh, and still yeah. easily accessible. Okay, Elspeth, yeah. last last question here, and I know it seems kind of silly, uh, but again, this is something everybody seems to get a kick out of what uh, what the answers are. What kind of oil do you run in your uh, in the in the sixty slash six and in the basic? Uh, I well in the sixty stroke six, I run Castrol GTX, okay, twenty W fifty. Uh, and now it's not that easy to get hold of, but Castrol do make a, a, a very similar oil for older air engines. So that's what I use in my R60, and I've always put the R60 in it. Um, the basic, I, I, I've put a bit of a, I think I've gone more for kind of synthetic oils uh, in the basic, and I don't know why. I think I had a long discussion with somebody down at BMW, and they said it was fine. But I, I don't know. I, I always worry. I, I, I kind of like the old school, you know, oil, oil. <laughs> right. <Real> oil. <laughs> you know, um, so uh, I mean, maybe I'll start using the, the Castrol uh, GTX in my basic as well. I think Castrol now call it X, uh, X1 or something, or classic X1. But, um, yeah. So that's what I use in the R60 anyway. Perfect, perfect. Well, let's say again, the book is called Lone Rider, and the second part of the description, the first, uh, is, it, is the title, The First British Woman to Circumnavigate the Globe on a Motorcycle? I believe. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, I don't like, actually. <laughs> I don't like that. I, yeah, I mean, Lone... <laughs> Lone Rider's perfect. I mean, do we need anything else? I mean, that's... Oh, no. And it's not important, and it's not why I did the trip anyway. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's it's like irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Anyway. I guess that was something the the publishers wanted to have on there. It was. It was. It was. Um, But I tried to to dissuade them, but they were not... uh, They were not... uh, They they, they thought it was a good strap line. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but I wish I'd don't take it off. So and yeah, I've asked them several times. Every reprint they do, I ask them to take it off, and they won't. Well, no, huh. no, they won't. How, so how and uh, how? What what version uh, of this uh, are you in? Um, I'm not sure because they did the they did they did the hardback first for the first year, and I think there were three or four reprints of that. And then because then the the copy in America is separate because I had my publisher in the UK first, um, and then I found a publisher in America which is Octane Press, um, and they published the um, like American edition, so it's slightly different cover. Than the, than the one that we have in the UK. The book's identical. It's, uh, everything's the same. Um, but it's got a different cover, but the strap line's the same. Um, so, but I've no idea, to be honest. I, I, I've, I've lost... Uh, I, I don't really pay attention. Well, is it... it seems to be selling, so that's all Yeah, good. I was going <laughs> to... As long as the checks are still coming in, it doesn't matter what version it is. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, yes, once again, Lone Rider, uh, we want to encourage everybody to go out uh, and get a copy. A lot more detail in there about some of the things we talked about. And we didn't talk a lot about the personal stuff um, since this is more of a motorcycle show. But there's 
uh, a lot of great insight uh, just into what that trip meant to you uh, as a person uh, and how it changed your life. So, Elspeth, look, it's really been just such a treat visiting with you today. Uh, again, as I said, probably the most famous uh, picture of uh, anybody on an R60-6. So <laughs> it's been great visiting with you. I've admired you from afar and uh, continued success in everything you do. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to Elspeth for a great conversation this week. Be sure to get a copy of her book, Lone Rider, if you've not read it. Or if you have read it, maybe you can revisit it in a new format after hearing this interview. Turns out Lone Rider is also available as an audiobook at audible.com. So check that out. And thanks for joining us this week. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.